Well, initially we could see uh, that there were some bloody shoe prints on the floor. So we had a look at the shoe prints and we knew that there were police and ambulance officers in attendance. We requested all their shoes. Uh, we could identify which ones had blood and we could compare them straight away with the shoe prints in blood which were on the various floor tiles. We later found out that she was a very meticulous person and she cleaned the tiled floors in the whole house every day. So we knew we were dealing with just the shoe prints on that day. We went through every single tile, because every single one was photographed, and compared to all the shoes that we were aware of had been present that day. We eliminated the whole lot, except for one. There was one shoe print we couldn't eliminate, and that was a Reebok Ashcrack, uh, size 11 half 12. When you compare the two shoes, you, you go for a number of features. So effectively, like here, we have seven marks, and by comparing it, you could say, what is the chance you're gonna get that mark in exactly that space, with exactly that shape, on this size shoe in New Zealand? Hi guys, welcome to the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you for joining us again this week. I'm Harry, and I'm here as always with my sister, Bill. We don't have a lot of formalities to discuss today, but I do want to say a huge thank you to our four new Patreon supporters this week. So Kylie, Leah, Beck and Michelle, thank you so much, girls. We've just started working on our November Patreon case, so keep an eye out for that on the 5th. Now we're going to get straight into this week's case. Um, this week we're travelling outside of Australia back to our country of birth to discuss a case that took place in New Zealand. This case rocked New Zealand in the mid-90s and left stay-at-home mums afraid to answer the door or leave their homes unlocked during the day. Today we are discussing the brutal and senseless murders of Tanya Ferlin and Joanne McCarthy. And just quickly, this is one of those cases where there's not as much information available, but obviously all cases do deserve attention, so I did want to do my best to sort of pull something together to discuss this case. And with that, over to Bill. Thanks, Harry. We did just want to mention that some of the suburbs in this um, case are hard to pronounce, so we really do apologise if we're pronouncing some of the suburbs wrong. We do get some criticism on our pronunciation, so we do do our best. Obviously, we're not from all the areas that we're covering cases in, so we don't know. We do our very best. We watch a documentary or even Google the town sometimes, and we try to say the correct name but we don't always get it right and definitely there's a lot of you guys letting us know that so we do apologize and hopefully we do this case justice and get some of the names correct. Tanya Ferlin was a beautiful 27 year old mother of three young children Katrina, Sonia and newborn baby Tiffany. Tanya lived in Howick, Auckland with her husband Victor and their girls. Howick is a suburb known for its historical buildings and remnants and has been called Auckland's most historically conscious place. According to our research, it is a fairly affluent area, quite suburban, and would be a great place to raise children. Tanya's husband, Victor, managed a local Big Fresh supermarket, and it appears that the family was doing well. On Friday the 26th of July 1996, Tanya was at home with baby Tiffany. She was, by all reports, a fastidious cleaner and had mopped and cleaned the house that morning. She then had a friend over for a cuppa and a chat. Somewhere between 4.30 and 5pm, there was a knock at the Ferlins door. What happened next will probably never be known with 100% certainty, but at the time, the most commonly accepted version is as follows. Tanya went to answer the door and was greeted by a man holding a large cardboard box. 
The man appeared to be a delivery person. After exchanging pleasantries, the man asked Tanya if he could borrow a pen. Reportedly, as she walked inside the house to grab one, the man followed her in and told her to lie down on the floor, producing a hammer from the cardboard box. He attacked her with the hammer and she was left bleeding to death on the floor. The man then took Tanya's baby Tiffany, placing her in the cardboard box before driving away in his car. As you can imagine, this attack can really only be described with a very strong language. It was brutal, savage and completely malicious. While Tanya was initially found bleeding and unconscious in her home, she did unfortunately pass away as a result of her injuries. Police suggested that the attack on Tanya was so brutal that they were almost certain the perpetrator was mentally impaired. Now I'm sure you're wondering what happened to baby Tiffany. Thankfully she was found unharmed shortly after the abduction in some bushes at the Royal Oak Baptist Church in Auckland, which is 18 kilometres away from the Furlan home. Reportedly witnesses near the church that day saw a tall, athletic, tanned or dark-skinned man rummaging around the bushes where Tiffany was later found. Witnesses also saw a red Daihatsu hatchback leaving the church car park not long before Tiffany was found. When police examined the crime scene, they were able to identify a footprint impression in blood and soil at the Furlan home. While they were able to eliminate the majority of the shoe prints found at the scene as belonging to the emergency services personnel, there was one shoe print that remained unidentified. This shoe print was the impression of a Reebok size 11.5 to 12 shoe. Forensic scientist Marnix Kelderman was able to determine that this footprint could only belong to the perpetrator of the crime. This was because Tanya had cleaned the floor that morning and this footprint was on top of the blood. Police openly admit that this footprint was the only evidence they had in Tanya's case, in the early days that is. As true crime creeps, most of us know that the victim's family and friends are usually the first people of interest in any homicide. However, in this case, police quickly realised that Tanya's family and associates were not involved. They thought maybe it was a child abduction gone wrong. Police began to develop a theory that perhaps a deranged woman had targeted Tanya with the hopes of abducting Tiffany to raise as her own. Other than speculation, they didn't have a lot to go on at the time. Three months later, there was a breakthrough in the case. A young man named Travis Burns walked into an Auckland police station and told police that he had information about the Tanya Ferland murder. He told police that his former cellmate, Christopher Lewis, had bragged about killing the young mother. The pair had met at the Auckland prison in Paramaribo in 1992. And I just wanted to say again, I do apologise if I'm pronouncing some of these suburbs wrong. The informant, Travis Burns, was no angel himself and had been serving time for rape at the time he shared a cell with Christopher Lewis. Detective Sergeant Richard Middleton travelled to Christchurch where Christopher Lewis was staying at his mother's house. He was arrested and charged with the murder of Tanya Ferlin. When they arrested Lewis, they noticed that he was wearing a pair of Reebok Aztrek Plus runners, which had exactly the same tread as the shoes that made the footprints at the crime scene. When they searched Christopher Lewis's property, they found a notepad with an indentation from a ransom note, which appeared to be an attempt to extort money from Tanya Furlan's husband, Victor. Despite these links to the murder, Christopher Lewis denied his involvement. Christopher Lewis had a very checkered past. Most notably, in 1981, Lewis had fired a gunshot at the Queen during her royal visit in Dunedin. The people in attendance who were hoping to get a glimpse of royalty thought their ears were playing tricks on them when they heard the loud bang during the royal procession. 
It was later found that Christopher Lewis, who was just 17 years old at the time, had taken a 22 rifle to Dunedin that day with plans to assassinate the Queen. For this attempt on the Queen's life, Christopher Lewis was sentenced to eight years for discharging a firearm in a public place. Can you imagine if that had gone wrong? Like if he had actually... If he'd gone through with it. That would have been horrible. Yeah. He would have been known as the guy who killed the Queen. He had also committed a series of bank robberies, including one which he reportedly committed on his school lunch break. Reportedly, he used his bicycle to transport him to and from the bank. The informant, Travis Burns, who dobbed on Christopher Lewis to the police, was awarded $30,000 for assisting in the arrest. Travis Burns was given a new identity and put under witness protection. He was able to claim government benefits along with his reward. He immediately bought a Ducati motorbike. He was also given a driver's license, even though his previous driver's license had been disqualified. So obviously it's quite a good deal for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's interesting they gave him $30,000. Especially as a convicted a criminal. Convicted criminal. And we'll definitely go into that more mm. as we go along. Yes, absolutely. Travis Burns was also able to help shine some light on a potential motive that Lewis may have for the murder. Travis Burns confirmed to police that Lewis was attempting to extort money from the Furlan family. According to Burns, Lewis had shown up dressed as a delivery man and attacked Tanya with an engineer's ball pain hammer. This is a specific type of hammer which has a flat end on one side and a rounded end on the other. This type of hammer was consistent with the unique injuries found on Tanya's body and added weight to Burns' story that Lewis had given him intimate knowledge of the crime. So apparently, according to Burns, Lewis's story was that his intention was only to injure Tanya so that he could abduct her and then ask the ransom from the husband. So it wasn't actually to abduct the baby. It was, the intention was to actually abduct her. This is according to Burns' story of what yeah. Lewis told him. Unfortunately, he reportedly ended up hitting her too hard and then realised she was going to die. So he finished her off and took the baby. So apparently Lewis told Burns that he actually wasn't sure why he had taken baby Tiffany, but he was glad he did because it seemed to be throwing the police off and sending them in the direction of a deranged woman rather than him. Burns also told the police that Lewis had initially placed a ransom note at the scene, only to return shortly after changing his mind to retrieve it. Travis Burns' information was consistent with the crime scene. There was evidence of the ransom note at Lewis's home and the type of hammer that Burns had mentioned matched up with the injuries Tanya had sustained. Based on the evidence, there was no reason for police not to believe Burns. Lewis was also a regular shopper at the Big Fresh supermarket managed by Victor Ferlin, so it was realistic that this may have been how he came across his targets. This, along with the shoe match, certainly led police to believe they had their man in Christopher Lewis. Lewis did give an alibi for the time of Tanya's murder. He said that he took his girlfriend to her yoga class and picked her son up from school for her. Reportedly, Lewis dropped his girlfriend at her yoga class every Friday. His girlfriend initially verified this alibi to police. While in custody, Christopher Lewis's mental health was deteriorating rapidly. On the 23rd of September 1997, after proclaiming his innocence in a suicide note and writing a draft for an autobiography, Lewis electrocuted himself in his Eden prison cell. But this isn't where the story ends. This is really only the beginning of what is now an extremely controversial case. In Lewis's autobiography, he points the finger at someone else for Tanya's murder, someone we have heard about already, his informant, Travis Burns. While Lewis was known to be psychotic and hardly reliable, there was some merit to his claims. 
Even to this day, there is still speculation about who really killed Tanya Ferlin. While Travis Burns had testified against his old friend Lewis at the preliminary hearing, Lewis had committed suicide before his prosecution case could go to trial. Therefore, the Crown prosecuted him without his presence and the case was closed. Had the case gone to trial while Christopher had still been alive, his defence lawyer David Jones may have raised some additional questions that to this day still remain unanswered. We will now go through some of these questions. Witnesses at the church believed they saw a tall, muscular, tanned man hanging around the church bushes where Tiffany was found. This description did not match Christopher Lewis. Lewis was short, blonde, skinny and he also had glasses. It was also determined that Christopher Lewis was using his girlfriend's Mitsubishi that day, not a red Daihatsu, although he did have a red Daihatsu. So you can kind of see how this case gets a bit confusing, and there are definitely questions about what exactly was going on. There are also other questions which we will discuss later in the episode. So it appears in our research that the police had no question at the time that they had their man. They believed that Christopher Lewis was the sole perpetrator in the murder of Tanya Ferlin, as we said before. But this all changed on the 12th of November 1998. Joanne McCarthy was a beautiful 33-year-old woman. She was a kindergarten teacher who was taking time off to care for her 11-month-old son, Marcus. By all accounts, she was a wonderful mother and woman, just like Tanya Ferlin. The McCarthy family lived in Little Manly, Auckland. The 12th of November 1998 was hot and Joanne reportedly had her windows open and children's music playing loudly inside. She was looking after a friend's 14-month-old daughter along with her son when there was a knock on the door. When Joanne answered the door, she was attacked. The perpetrator followed her through the house as she tried to fight back and escape. She fought for her life and to protect the two babies in her care. She would later be compared to a lioness protecting her cubs. Thankfully, being the strong woman she was, Joanne scratched her attacker hard, transferring his skin and DNA under her fingernails. This would eventually be his undoing. Unfortunately, Joanne did pass away during the attack and was put into a bathtub by the perpetrator. The killer then gave each of the children a biscuit before running from the house. Sometime later, the mother of the 14-month-old girl and a close friend of Joanne's arrived at the house to pick up her daughter and found her friend in a bath full of bloody water. Terrified and devastated, she called the police and waited what must have been the longest nine minutes of her life for them to arrive. She tried to comfort the two distraught children and was extremely frightened that the killer may return to the house. That's and you can very just imagine brave. how terrifying yeah, that would be. That's very brave. When police heard about the murder of Joanne McCarthy, they immediately recognised similarities between the two homicides. However, they knew that their suspected killer of Tanya, Christopher Lewis, couldn't have killed Joanne because, as we know, he was dead. Was this murder a copycat killing or was someone else involved in Tanya's murder and had struck again? They had the killer's DNA, and when they tested it, it produced a match. The killer was Travis Burns, the informant, who got $30,000. Yeah. As you can imagine, when the police realised that Burns was capable of this exact type of murder, they knew that it was also possible that he had been involved in Tanya's murder too, and perhaps used his inside knowledge of the crime to dob in Lewis. One of the police officers on the Furlan case, Detective Perry, recommended Tanya's case be reopened and investigated with the focus on Travis Burns as a potential accomplice and suspect. An internal review was conducted into the murder of Tanya Ferlin, but no new evidence was found to charge Burns. 
Before we go any further, we think it's important that we look at who the police informant Travis Burns really was. And if you're like us, this is gonna leave you wondering why the police didn't look a bit harder at him when he was feeding them that information about Christopher Lewis. Travis Burns was born on the 14th of July, 1968, to Charlotte and David Burns in Papakura, Auckland. And once again, I'm not 100% sure I said that correctly. At the age of three, his father left the family and moved to Australia, where he remarried and had another son. To add insult to injury, David Burns named his new son Travis as well. Can that, you believe that? Yeah, like, it's really weird. It's so weird. That is extremely unusual. And I know Travis Burns obviously turns out to be a horrible person, but can you imagine as a child, like, yeah. your parent moving away and having, like, another child and then basically just... I can't imagine. No, it's so weird. Yeah. So little Travis Burns in Auckland now had a little brother also called Travis Burns who was being raised by his father in a different country. And for a child, I imagine this would have made Travis feel like he'd been replaced. Yeah, absolutely. At the age of eight, Travis Burns committed his first major crime, robbing a house down the street. Burns attended Rose Hill College, which is a state school in Papakura. But he left in fifth form, which actually I think is the equivalent to about year nine or ten in Australia. Once Burns left school, he moved out of home and lived on the streets. He was constantly getting into trouble and could often be found at the youth courts. He committed his first rape in 1984 after sniffing some glue with a homeless girl before attacking and raping her. This matter was never brought to justice because the girl ran away before her court date. That's just horrible. Really sad. In 1988, when Burns was 19 years old, he was driving through Papa Toy Toy when his car broke down. He decided that now he couldn't drive any further, he might as well commit some burglaries in the area. He broke into one house and took a knife from the kitchen drawer before making his way into the bedroom. He found a 20-year-old woman sleeping and held her at knife point, threatening and raping her. He was caught for this crime after leaving fingerprints at the scene and this was the crime he was serving time for when he met Christopher Lewis. When Travis Burns was tried for the rape of the 20-year-old woman, Justice Robertson, who was hearing the case, stated that Burns could be compared to a wild animal. He was sentenced to eight and a half years in jail and sent to the Wanganui prison in Kaitoki. A friend of the woman later stated that the rape had basically ruined the woman's life and she'd been so traumatised that she had eventually left New Zealand. Four years into Travis Burns' sentence, while the Wanganui prison work party was taking place, he managed to escape from the prison. It took two months before he was eventually caught near Hokianga, and it was decided that he would be moved to the higher security Auckland prison. As we earlier stated, this was where he met Christopher Lewis. Travis Burns was released from prison in 1995 and entered into a relationship with a young single mother, Teresa Brandon, who he had met at a party. Soon after, she gave birth to his first child, a daughter. While he initially tried to go straight and stay out of trouble so he could take care of his family, the call of the life of crime was too strong for Travis Burns. He eventually stole a car in Auckland CBD and ended up in a police chase, which ended in Papakura, where he tried to ram into some police cars. After that, he jumped out of the car and attempted to flee on foot. He was pursued by police constable David Templeton, who was also on foot, and his police dog Sabre. When Templeton and Sabre caught up with Burns... He turned on them using a fence post as a weapon, hitting them again and again until the fence post snapped in half. Mm. 
Later, Constable Templeton actually recalled how crazed Burns appeared as he unleashed his attack on them, thinking that he and Sabre may actually be killed in the attack. He was returned to prison until May 1996, when he was released into the custody of the Waipareera Trust, which is a provider that offers services in mental health, recovery from addiction, and helping offenders integrate back into the community. So it was a good place for Burns, and from what I've read, he was actually the first inpatient to stay at the Waipareera house. So this brings us back to the events that took place around Tanya Ferland's murder. Now that we have explored the past of both of the men at the centre of the investigation, the informant Travis Burns and the accused Christopher Lewis, we can look at the evidence we have. What really happened that day, we may never know, but we want to give you the available information so that you can form your own hypothesis. So in 1996, prior to Tanya's murder, Burns and Lewis were still friends and in contact. Lewis, who had been paroled before Burns, would often visit the Waipareera house to catch up with his old cellmate. Reportedly at some point in early 1996, Travis Burns approached Christopher Lewis with a kidnapping plan, but Lewis didn't think it was a good idea. Lewis had a hydroponic cannabis operation which was keeping him busy and Burns would sometimes take care of this for him when he could get away from the centre for a bit. From what we've read, Travis Burns was able to leave the Waipareera centre occasionally, but his movements were closely monitored. On the day of Tanya Ferland's murder, it was initially thought that Travis Burns had a very strong alibi. He was marked as present at the Waipareera centre at 4.45pm, which would make it impossible for him to be in Howick which was 25 to 30 minutes drive between 4.32 and 4.50pm when Tanya was murdered. Once police dug a little deeper, it was found that these checks were not particularly precise. Someone would be marked as present even if they were seen recently, not necessarily directly cited at the time. The man who checked Burns in had actually become mates with him and later stated that the last time he actually cited Burns was probably closer to 3.45pm, giving him more than enough time to get to Howick. He wasn't directly sighted at the centre again until 7pm, so there is actually enough time in there. On that day, Burns was supposed to be getting picked up by his girlfriend, Teresa, at 1pm. However, she never showed up. One theory that has been put forward is that Christopher Lewis picked Burns up from the centre after his girlfriend didn't show up. This would place the men together and could lead us to the assumption that they travelled together to Tanya Ferland's house and committed the crime together. This theory seems to fit with some of the evidence as well. This theory would also explain why a large, athletic, dark-skinned man was seen lurking around the church where Tiffany was found. Burns was a large, athletic, Maori man and fitted the description far better than Lewis did. Christopher Lewis was a career criminal and a small man. If he intended to kidnap Tanya for ransom money, he would most likely be aware that he wouldn't be able to complete the task alone. Also on that note, as a career criminal... Why would he leave a ransom note only to come back and get it? In a documentary about the case called The Investigator, the host points out that any career criminal would know that that move would be far too risky. This brings up the question, was there really a ransom note at the time of the murder or was the indentation found at Lewis's property created later to cast suspicion on one accomplice over the other? With all the new information coming to light, Police also looked back at Travis Burns' original statement against Lewis, where he had specifically stated that Christopher Lewis had used a ballpain hammer. Would Burns have needed to point out such a specific fact if he was simply informing on his friend? Would Lewis have even made Burns aware of the exact type of hammer used when bragging to his friends about the murder? It is possible, but it doesn't really seem likely. 
In addition, if the motive for murder really was the kidnapping of Tanya Ferland for ransom, why would the perpetrator need a large box just to carry a small hammer to the door? And obviously Tanya's not going to fit in the box, so it wouldn't be for that reason. Maybe the motive never was kidnapping. Maybe this motive was an afterthought for the informant. There are three main theories when it comes to this murder. The first is that Christopher Lewis was the lone perpetrator and the police got it right the first time. This would mean the murder of Joanne McCarthy was a copycat killing committed by Travis Burns, which would obviously be quite weird as the informant on the other murder. Why would he then go and commit the same murder? Yeah. It absolutely could have happened, but it does seem a little bit weird. There are so many questions. There's questions, yeah. It was eventually realised that Christopher Lewis didn't have the airtight alibi he initially claimed to have either. While he was usually on time to take his girlfriend to her Friday yoga session, she later remembered that the day that Tanya was murdered, Lewis was actually late to pick her up, which obviously gives him more time to have been the part of the murder. Additionally, none of Travis Byrne's DNA was found at Tanya Ferland's crime scene, which is a bit unusual given the violent nature of the attack. The second theory is that the men acted together to kill Tanya Ferland. Based on the fact that we know Burns went on to kill Joanne McCarthy, maybe he was just a killer who had the urge to kill single mothers. Maybe Lewis was just along for the ride, or maybe he was unaware that Burns was out to actually kill the victim. One thing that police noticed at the crime scene was that the welcome mat had been moved, and they did reason that it was possible that a second perpetrator could have actually used that mat as a buffer to avoid leaving their own footprints at the crime scene. And this evidence may support um, this second theory. The third theory is that Burns acted alone with the motive being to kill Tanya and Joanne and set up his friend as an afterthought to clear his own name. It is possible that Christopher Lewis lent his red Daihatsu to Burns so that he could tend to the hydroponic marijuana plants that day. For this theory to work, we would have to believe that Burns stole Lewis's shoes to wear during the crime, which is possible but maybe not probable. Police were able to determine that Lewis's red Daihatsu was definitely the car used to transport the killer or killers to Tanya Ferland's house. Her blood was found in that car, and there was no blood found in Lewis's girlfriend's Mitsubishi, which was the car that Lewis was said to have been driving at some point that day. This case has many different twists and turns, and unfortunately, as we said before, Tanya Ferland will never receive the full justice for her horrifying and brutal murder. In August 2000, Travis Burns was found guilty for the brutal murder of much-loved mother, wife, and teacher, Joanne McCarthy. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 15 years. He has since applied for parole twice and has been denied, with a psychologist stating that he is a high risk for re-offending, which you I would, would have to agree with. I would have to think You'd have Hopefully to think Hopefully so. he's never on the streets. I really hope not. 15 years just does not seem like enough. No, for potentially two murders, yeah. if not at least one. I hope he never gets out. And serious murders, like very like disturbing and well yeah. thought out and Absolutely. meticulously planned. Just terrifying. These two murders are extremely sad. Two beautiful mothers who are remembered as being wonderful women who lost their lives in these senseless crimes. Our thoughts are with the family and friends of Tanya Ferlin and Joanne McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining us again for the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope you've learned something from today's episode. We hope that you guys join us again next week for another case. And until then, please stay safe.